Hello and welcome to a very special fighting in the war room. We're not going to give this one a number because instead of... It's too good for numbers. Yeah, We're past exactly. numbers now. Exactly. But as is uh, the time that happens uh, late summer, uh, some places where we have school starting, but not everywhere. Uh, it's just a collection of hosts that could make it. This was going to be me, Katie Rich, and uh, David talking about uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue. Did you happen to get a chance to watch that, David? Did I watch Red, White, and Royal? I mean, actually, I don't know why I would say it with that inflection, because there's, <laughs> there, there is definitely a world in which I would sit down and watch Red, White, and Royal Blue. Um, I, uh, but I didn't. I didn't. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I think Katie and, I, Katie and I are still going to have to give that a go uh, when she's available. But unfortunately, there was a storm and knocked down some trees and took out Katie's power. And she is powerless. Not good conditions for podcasting. Um, but David and I have, uh, you know, overcome our own hardships, uh, children on one side and a broken air conditioner and, uh, we'll let you like guess 98 degree heat. which is which exactly. And, uh, it have come to just, uh, bless your feed with, uh, some random thoughts, uh, and, uh, bits and, uh, pieces. Yeah. I haven't um, been, I haven't been on this podcast in like two weeks. I got to remind you guys that I'm alive. Yeah, uh, how was it two weeks, David? What'd you what were you, what'd you get up to? Uh, what did I get up to? The I was in. I can't remember what happened two weeks ago, but <laughs> when something or other happened. But uh, last week I was in California with my wife and children visiting my in-laws, and it was uh, delightful. We went to Stinson Beach, which is uh, a little bit north of San Francisco. Uh, I stood about a hundred yards. I drove over the Golden Gate Bridge and could not see the top of it from the steering wheel of the car that I was driving because the fog was so thick and then yeah, stood nice. about a hundred yards away from it and also could not see the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, but I assure you that it was there. Uh, God, they must have repaired it since the Godzilla and the Mutos uh, dueled on it, which is basically all I could think about the entire time I was there. Um, there was also a scene from one of those Planet of the Apes movies, maybe the first one, not, you know, of the, of the, oh, of yeah, the James yeah, yeah. Franco the, series. Caesar um, of the yeah. Apes, the Caesar movie. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, um, and this is what the planet. This is what the Golden Gate Bridge is known for. Um, and yeah, that was fine. And now I'm uh, thrown thrown out of the furnace into the fire and a bunch of work shit and preparing for uh, preparing for all the fall festivals. And we were 15 minutes late in this recording because, uh, as Dave sort of alluded to, my kid just woke up and even though he's been fully potty trained for more than a year now, decided that he had to pee all over the floor of our bathroom. Um, who knows what's going on with that? Um, but yeah, that's what I've been up to. Cleaning that's, up the uh, piss. It, it sound, sounds like a full life. I, yeah, I, I, it I certainly it. is that. <laughs> um, so I was, I was talking right before we started about maybe going to see Blue Beetle, I guess, because I'm a uh, well, I hear that I'm either someone who will appreciate superhero cinema or I'm a glutton for punishment. Which one do you think it is, David? I mean, you're most definitely both. <laughs> Those things are mutually exclusive. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if if Dave Gonzalez, uh, you know, not only because of your heritage, but also because of your glutton for punishment, your gluttony for punishment, your love of all things superhero, you literally just wrote a book that I uh, hear is being very well reviewed about superheroes. Uh, better reviewed, some might say, than really any of the DCEU movies, but certainly Blue Beetle. <laughs> um, 
but and maybe the best reviewed thing that Marvel has, has anything to do with in a long time. Um, if not going to go see this movie, then then superhero movies are really well and truly fucked. But I had to go see this movie because I had been not on vacation, but out of town and, and dodging some of the bigger movies for a minute and felt like I had an obligation to cover a big Hollywood movie uh, for a minute. And this is the one that fell into my lap. And uh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if we're going to do a full segment about it later. I don't know if the there's the appetite for that sort of thing. I had never heard of Blue Beetle until I'd say about three weeks ago. I thought this was a Transformers spinoff, which is really confusing to me because right. there just was a Transformers spinoff. And I was like, wow, they're really pumping those things yeah. out. Where, um, where Ramos, uh, Ramos got a, a Transformers armor at the end of it, which I they believe is the premise of Blue Beetle. Is, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, happens. from as someone who had only seen like a clip of the trailer... When he like I, I I don't know and Beetle being a car you know this is just how my mind put things together but anyway I was disabused of that notion before I saw the movie but I I was not familiar with the Blue Beetle character you know it's the long and short of it is that it is uh, it is another extremely uh, another superhero origin story that is petrified of failure um, taking any sort of creative risk um, it was originally greenlit for HBO Max. And even now, going to theaters with a $120 million budget, it, it's happy to remind you that it was originally dedicated, de- destined for streaming. I mean, it looks some real uh, PlayStation 2 ass era graphics. Um, <laughs> to use the word graphics in the description of this movie. But I also like, you know, I, I, there are things to appreciate about it. The first being, uh, to, as I alluded to earlier, that it is, the fir- it is not the first Latino led superhero movie. Um, Joe Carnahan produced one a few years ago that I reviewed. Uh, not positively, and uh, then receive some uh, some feedback from that from invested parties. Is all I'll say. Uh, but um, the this is the first Latino led superhero movie from a major studio, um, and you know the movie the movie makes the most of that. I mean, in the, the it it doesn't shy away from you know that being a defining aspect of its characters. Um, and there's also a great sense of place. It's sort of a mishmash. This fictional city where the characters live that's being gentrified is a mishmash between like Miami and Hong Kong. Um, mm. And I think the house where the family lives, which is some might say a character into itself if they were going to be a little hacky about it. Looks like it was shot in parts of San Juan. Um, and there's a there's a really nice sort of. Um, a sense of place to it, and the family is strongly foreground. You know everything about them. They're they past, and particularly, you know, the sort of revolutionary past, and alludes to in sort of uh, extremely underwritten ways um, how this family and even some of the other characters in the movie were shaped by U.S. involvement, intervention in Latin American governments, um, and it, unlike. Just about every other superhero movie I've seen, the the only really the only fresh beat in the entire movie is that when the kid, the Blue Beetle, his powers manifest, it is not something that he has to keep secret. All of Spider Man, it happens at the uh, in the kitchen at, at the kitchen room table in front of his entire family, um, and immediately sort of involves them in the adventure from there, and uh, it that it, you know and it, and it harnesses that throughout the movie, um, but man. Uh, I I don't know if I've ever seen a superhero movie that cares less about its mythology than I do, um, <laughs> which is like a low bar or a high one, depending on how you look at it. But 
Uh, I came away from this movie with questions such as, what was the Blue Beetle? Why did it choose this kid that it chose? Um, what, what does, did, did Susan, I mean, I'm basically just paraphrasing my review now, but like, did Susan Sarandon, who plays the villain, know that she was in this movie? Uh, you know, she, it's, it's like, it's very, very slapdash. It's very superhero movie 101. It feels, it, it feels like it looks, which is that, you know, a product from like 2008. Um, and coming out at this time when superhero movies already feel like they have, kind of hit a wall, to put it mildly, and in the wake of Barbenheimer, when it feels like audiences are showing Hollywood that they're champing at the bit for for uh, things they haven't seen before, and not just, you know, and you could argue in some respects that Blue Beetle gives them that, but not um, not not to the extent that it needed to. Uh, it, it is a pretty anachronistic and wild thing to see. But the thing I was going to say at the start of this monologue was that, the, you know, its silliness is sometimes a feature, and not just a bug, uh, because this movie more than most of the, or really, I mean, I didn't see Quantumania, but like most of the big superhero movies I've seen is really going for a Saturday morning cartoon vibe. I mean, from like the wailing synths that are just jamming everything, all the, the purple and pink neon lights um, that bring the fictional city to life, but that are also Susan uh, Sarandon has sort of festooned around her military helicopters that she flies around with. I mean, the way that she barks at her henchmen, it's all very, you know, like an episode of, like a blacklit episode of G.I. Joe or something like that. I mean, yeah, the, the energy I was going to say clear. G.I. Joe. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, like, it has that going for it. Uh, it does not excuse how fucking stupid a lot of this movie is, <laughs> and not in an amusing way. I mean, it's like, it's, I was very bored for large parts of it. And then when they bring the family together and they give a grandma a giant gun shaped like a Rubik's cube and shit like that, um, it is momentarily fun and you get flashes of the movie that it could have been, but it feels so artistically compromised. And the way I described it in my review is that it's sort of a creatively orphaned movie about the power of family because it was made by people who, uh, not necessarily the filmmakers, but you know, the, the people holding the purse strings um, who were looking at this character that doesn't necessarily have the same popularity I mean, the version of it that we see in the film was just invented in like 2005. Um, Blue Beetle has been around forever, but it obviously hasn't saturated to the same extent as any of the other DCU's other main characters. Um, and they wanted to play it insufferably safe, which in this particular moment feels uh, suicidal. I mean, it's, it's like it, it is a movie that is reminding you every five minutes why you are tired of movies like this. Um, but... It's better than Black Adam, so I guess we want to call that progress. I don't know. Dave, I mean, you're going to see it anyway. Yeah, probably. They had to dump it because, you know, they're rebooting the whole DC universe, but, like, had all these other movies that didn't get Batgirled, and so they're just going to shove it out there, and maybe it makes money back. Nobody cares. Uh, but I'm excited that maybe this character gets to stick around uh, in the new DCU as I James Gunn is hinted. but, like... One of the one of the worst things about the movie is Blue Beetle himself. I mean, there's absolutely it's, he's a void. I mean, there's like it's like Harry Potter syndrome, you know, to the X degree. Uh, he, you know, in the, he's the center of a story. He's surrounded by more interesting characters, but he has no traits of his own other than like being sort of plucky and having a nice smile. Um, and I guess you could say there's opportunity there, but I would just as well never see this character again. Um, if you want to have a George Lopez spinoff, great. Uh, but like, <laughs> you know, I, we don't need Blue Beetle there. Um, but uh, so that's kind of a problem. But it is it did make me think you mentioned Batgirl watching Blue Beetle. I was like, how 
how bad was Batgirl? <laughs> like, how low rent and undercooked was it that they, you know, buried it forever when this is getting the full theatrical release? And, like, I'm glad this is coming out in theaters rather than on HBO uh, Max, which doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> or on Max, um, as I am with just about any movie. But, uh, man, yeah, it makes me even more curious to one day see Batgirl now. Well... Good to know. I might beat myself over the head with it anyway. We'll see how the weekend goes. Uh, last maybe weekend, you'll, maybe you'll like it, and uh, and you'll come back here and you can update our listeners with a different take. But oh, you know, yeah, I'll even like, the, even the high end reviews seemed pretty pretty middling. <laughs> this Dave said meh, and this Dave <laughs> said meh. Uh, maybe that's how it ended up. Yeah, um, I mean uh, more or less. So, also this weekend, I watched uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue, and not to too much spare this conversation, or save this conversation, spoil the conversations coming up later, but uh, yelled at it a lot while it was happening. Mm. Can you, uh, can you and, tell me in detail, or not in detail, but in more detail than I currently have at my disposal, what that is? Uh, yeah, it's a uh, gay romantic comedy about the son of the U.S. president, played by Uma Thurman, uh, falling in love with uh, the prince the second prince the spare prince if you will uh from the royal family in the uk they okay. uh they they fall in gay love uh it's very sweet some emails are leaked to provide a you know rom-com twist where they're supposed to not get together anymore but they get back together uh it it's you know been doing okay but uh, for a lot of reasons uh i think primarily i think it's pretty boringly and cheaply directed uh, I looked up the guy who did it, and I'm very happy that he's now moving into like feature directing. But he did uh, write, direct, and produce this. And his only previous credit that I could find was as a writer for some episodes of the Newsroom. So <laughs> we like, have okay. to do the news, Will. <laughs> but uh, as a response, uh, the day I watched that movie, Java is uh, part of a, or not? She's she's part of a service of this uh, group called the Film Foundation that works with a website called uh, Delphi Quest, and they do uh, these like timed uh, digital screenings of restorations. So starting like Thursday at seven p.m. through this Sunday, uh, they were screening a restoration of Alma Mia or the Night of the Counting Years. Have you ever seen this movie? This nineteen sixty eight Egyptian mummy movie uh it, it is uh probably the only 1968 egyptian film i haven't seen but <laughs> i haven't well it turns out like the non-restored version is in the public domain because that's how it goes they tried submitting this film uh to be the egyptian entry for the best foreign language film uh for the academy awards when it was released uh they did not accept it uh, so I don't know exactly when it was first released here, but you can find it on uh, archive.org under its English language title, The Night of the Counting Years. It's a 1969, uh, I guess, like, uh, realist, Egyptian realism movie, uh, but it's about an actual thing that happened in Egypt, which is like in 1881, uh, there's a tribe uh, that lives in the mountains, and sort of the ancestral secret of this tribe is... The elders of the tribe will go into these uh, un unmapped, unfound Egyptian tombs that only their tribe, uh, the Horabat tribe, knows about. 
and will essentially grave rob these mummies to then sell the artifacts uh, to collectors in Cairo who then put it on the black market, but they've been feeding uh, this tribe for several generations, basically by like robbing uh, their grave, uh, the graves of their ancestors. The movie picks up and uh, the head of the tribe has passed away and it's time for his two sons to know the secret. And both of the sons are like, this is real fucked up. And the movie is about how both of the sons try to uh, extradite uh, their tribe from uh, grave robbing their way into just surviving, uh, but also sort of tainting uh, what makes them, um, you know, spiritual tribe, uh, people of the land. There's a lot of arguments over who owns uh, these old Egyptian remains uh, and the various gold thing uh, that comes with it. Turns out it's uh, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> well, when Java pitched it to me, she's like, you should watch this. It's like the anti-Indiana Jones. And I'm like, oh, mm. cool. Uh, but I didn't. It definitely is. I just didn't know what that meant necessarily. What it means is like when Indiana, when Raiders of the Lost Ark would stop and do an action scene, this one stops and has some very ponderous, well-thought moments that are like shot and sound mixed in an amazing way especially after watching red white and royal blue it was so nice to see every camera placement and moment have like real intention uh as there's especially great parts where one of the sons is trying to figure out what to do and he's sort of like wandering through the desert spying on people and you think that would be difficult because it's like a desert uh but the way the camera sort of positions in or positions itself so he's sort of like ducking in and out of the dunes and it's very frequently I hidden. Mean, if gets it across. this summer's movies have taught me anything, especially Ethan Hunt's latest adventure, it's that you you can you can do some covert shit in the desert. You can hide, exactly. you can duck, you can shoot. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the restoration was amazing, but also if you just feel like uh, check it out, uh, Egyptian film from 1969. Uh, it is uh, available online, and uh, it's like uh, I don't know a hundred minutes about and I had a really good time with it but that's my contribution to good cinema you could look up to and find right now since uh, we're still this time of year wasn't great for good cinema anyway uh, but it's especially being like squished between uh, you know the strike movements and people uh, letting Barbie and Oppenheimer have some legs uh, along with things like Elemental uh, so not a lot going on in theaters. I will definitely check in with you guys on Blue Beetle if I go see it. Well, but I did sort more of. Than I likely. mean, I, I I would agree that there's not a ton going on in theaters at the moment. Um, but I did sort of bury the lead. Um, which is that really what I've been doing? It's even even uh, it's played a greater role in uh, my life over the last two weeks than that trip I took with two young children uh, across the country and back. Has been a show called Love Island. <laughs> or as the announcer pronounced it, Love Island. Actually, I can't even get it right. I mean, the, 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 the inflection is so different than what would come naturally to me. It's like, Love Island. As if, yeah, it's like, Love Island. The emphasis love on the love that always gets me. Um, previously, I have to do the whole thing or else I can't get it. It's like, previously, on Love Island. Um, <laughs> anyway, show uh, that has obviously sort of been in the, in the world, in the ether for a long time. Um, I had, I think I had watched like the opening five minutes of an episode once, uh, of the first episode of a season, which is, it turns out not at all representative of how the rest of the show unfolds and decided that it was like way too overproduced for me as someone who 
likes their reality shows a little bit more of like the Terrace House variety, sort of as underproduced or like Big Brother. I don't like Big Brother. I haven't really watched Big Brother, but that sort of vibe where it's less constructed. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it turns out that Love Island is actually sort of the most of the, the reality dating shows in that vein. Um, once you get through the introductions at the start of the season, it's really just about people uh, hanging around the villa and uh, making connections. And I, I love how long the seasons are. I have not watched them in real time. In reality, they, they air them basically the day after they happen, uh, four or five days a week or something like that. I was reading an article about the workflow that a lot of, and Dave, I'm sure this is something you can appreciate, having to take uh, that volume of footage and turn it around 24 hours, the team of people they must have, the fiber optic cables involved, <laughs> oh, yeah. the um, technology, well, you, it's just mind-blowing. You hope um, they have a team of people and not two editors and an AI I suite. don't think, I mean, it reminds me of something like the uh, HBO um like the hard knocks shows, you know, where they, mm. they are showing every week what happened the previous week in uh, the training camp of a football team or something like that. Um, the turnaround is just insane. And this seems even harder because rather than having, I mean, they have structured time because the producers are obviously saying, you know, now you're going to talk about this and you're going to sit at this table and they determine the shape of the day. There are no clocks available to these people, but uh, it's still, you know, all day long is sort of on the table. Um, and, it's pretty incredible that just the, the workflow involved. But anyway, uh, this shit could not be more catnip for me, more geared towards my brain. Uh, perfect background noise. I have watched a truly disturbing amount of it, starting with the season two of the UK version. Uh, <laughs> and I am now on series four. And mind you, they are 50 episodes long a piece. <laughs> um, although I do not watch the weekly hot list, as they call it, the weekly recap. Uh, just to give those editors more to do on Saturday nights. Uh, no need. But, um, yeah, all you Love Islanders out there, uh, the, like the greatest satisfaction I've gotten from any television show in recent memory is, is going to check when I finally finish a season, the where are they now articles online, and learning that some of the couples who, when they like match up at the start of the season, like a guy walks out of a door and looks at a bird, you know, he's a geezer, and he sees a bird standing there, and he's like, oh, I, I, you're not going to mug me off, like, I'll be with you, eh? And, like, they, they get together, and some of those people, cut to five years later, uh, are married with two children. <laughs> and it's like, they literally walked out a door, saw a person, coupled up, and that was it. Um, and uh, that's pretty remarkable, um, however you slice it. Uh, and uh, who those couples were, I shan't spoil, but some of them, particularly one of those couples from season three or series three, I should say, really sort of melted my heart um, because there is a condensed. Oh, I actually I don't want to say no more because it would be too obvious what I was talking about. But Love Island, man, it's a it's a way of life. Um, I can't believe. So I looked it up and the Love Island that is listed on IMDb has 40 editors listed for... It looks like this is just the 2020, 2021, and 2022 seasons. Yeah. So uh, there's uh, not an AI program. Many editors. They actually, they mentioned in this interview that I was reading about the workflow, sort of troublingly that they, but understandably in this particular context, that they were waiting for AI to be advanced enough that it could at least auto subtitle all of the dialogue because there's so many 
different accents that are being thrown together. Um, you know, they have, they have contestants from Wales and from Scotland and from all sorts of different areas of, uh, of England. And the, the accents that they're just not like the AI software, at least at the time of this interview, just like wasn't sophisticated enough. Um, and that's a job that, you know, I'm loath for AI to take over anything, including if it's going to make my own life easier. But that is one job that I can understand the, the impulse. Yeah. Uh, I would also just not like to be the human that has to go in and right. clean up the AI mistakes either. Yeah. Uh, might as well just do it yourself at that point. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a super fun job, but you do get to see Love Island 20 minutes before everyone else as your hands are typed into nubs. <laughs> as, it, as, it's, um, as it's rendering so. directly to tape. But maybe um, next, next year, uh, because Love Island is also like every, every few episodes they call upon the public to vote on who should stay in the island and whatnot. And you know, as I said, they air new episodes every night over the course of the week, except for Hump Day as the uh, American version of the series, which I have not yet gotten to and am wary of, uh, likes to remind you. Uh, but uh, maybe next summer with Love Island season 11, I will watch in real time and can report about back about that experience. Sounds good. Well, I think we've done our due diligence of putting out a weekly podcast on this feed. Uh, David, is there anything you, you would like our listeners to know this week? Uh, I mean, I got some shit to plug, I suppose. I've been doing one of the reasons I am. Uh, I'm really feeling it at the moment is that I came back from that trip and, and directly into putting together IndieWire's 80s week package, which is off and running. Uh, and by the time you read this, we'll probably or hear this will be nearing its end. But um has been a really thorough uh, deep dive into all things 80s. In addition to uh, top 100 films of the decade list, sort of obligatory. We've also had really, really uh, interesting deep dives into stories such as like how the Sundance Institute was born, how the synth overtook uh, the Hollywood scores in the 80s. We have Michael Giacchino uh, interview that's exclusively about his love and influence and the influence on him of the Raiders, the Lost Art score. We have pieces about how consent was presented in films of the 80s and fatal attraction. I interviewed Gary Goatsman, who produced Stop Making Sense and was the uh, inspiration for the main character in Licorice Pizza um, and uh, all sorts of things of that nature. Um, and it has been, uh, there's a lot of it. I don't know if any of that tickles your fancy, go into wire, read about it. Um, that is a plug, but also it is what I've been doing. Um, and then we'll turn the page and go directly into the fall festivals, I suppose. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, nothing much to plug on my end, but if you want to pre-order that book David was talking about before, you go to themcubook.com, get that happening. Uh, some questions I've been getting. Is there going to be an audiobook? Yes, it'll go up for sale soon if it hasn't already. Uh, where can you get it signed uh right now i know for sure if you're in denver there's going to be something uh the week of release and it appears that joanna and i will be at new york comic-con oh uh, hell yeah to do that so we will be swinging by to say hello to you david i um, wait, i have two questions one yeah. what if and it feels like with the reviews already being out it's probably too late if you see blue beetle and it changes everything I mean, luckily, I know it's Marvel the DCU is just the as Marvel opposed to Marvel. Yeah. I know, I know. The streams may not cross, but what if it like so alters the hierarchy of power, not just in the DC EU, but in superhero cinema in general, and you feel like your book is suddenly obsolete? What are you going to do? 
Uh, well, you know, we do have book plates, so I could get a, a custom book plate from the publisher being like, uh, you know, this is a fantastic book, signed Dave Gonzalez, P.S., but really you should see Blue Beetle, it changes superhero <laughs> movies forever. <laughs> really everything then, we wrote in this book and no longer has any bearing on what's happening uh, in the yeah. world. James um, Gunn might not like what's in the book, but he will <laughs> like this recommendation, uh, you see Blue Beetle. My uh, other question this. is, how, if we were left to our own devices for however long it's been now, 29 minutes, have we not talked about Marvel Snap? I mean, it just feels like a criminal misuse I mean, we of this could, opportunity. We could, do, we could do that on our way out. Everybody knows where to find us and what we're going to plug. What, uh, what's, what's going on with Marvel Snap for you? I mean, I don't know, man. It's a new season, big in Japan season, trying to climb up the ranks, do my thing. But I, I feel like I'm like a few really key cards behind that, and not just the brand new cards, like Lady Deathstrike, which just premiered and seems very helpful. Maybe like a, de- a destroy deck. But like the cards that are really in a, a craw on my side, uh, or something in my craw, whatever the fuck that expression is, um, that I do not have and continue to haunt me, are uh, Iron Lad and um, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Now, I, one day I would love to know a little bit more about the origins of Jeff, but uh, it's just a character. But uh, their 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 lack of my and and like I guess I could use Iron Legion, but really it's it's like Iron Lad and Jeff would would do me a lot of good because if I had Jeff, I could run a control deck, and I feel like mm-hmm. without him, it's not even worth trying. Uh, I have also been missing out on some cards because they changed how card acquisition works, and I do not like this new way. So I actually have not bought into Big in Japan yet. I am Dakenless. Uh, as far mm. as that uh, series par- ca- card goes, I'm sitting on 6,000 collector's tokens and I'm going to try to find the one that I think could really do something. I would also love Iron Lad, which I don't have. I do have Jeff. Very fun. Once you have Jeff, Rag. Jeff goes in so many decks. I know, I know. I fuck. It's like because I didn't know what I was doing and there were opportunities. I don't know if I ever had an opportunity to get Jeff, but I once had an opportunity to get like a one cost spider ham back in the day when that was a thing. And I chose instead some other bullshit card that I never use. And Spider-Ham was immediately, like, clearly the missing piece in all my decks. And now I use them even at two-card cost in my bounce decks, but not the same. Yeah, so I, I really hope they change the card acquisition system because I opened one spotlight cache, got a variant, and I was like, well, now I need to, what, like... Uh, so well, I've been banking my spotlight caches because every week they change which cards that are. And for the past like three weeks, they've all been cards that I have. And I don't even want to try to get a variant. So I'm going to fall behind. Uh, they definitely stopped doing series drops. There hasn't been a series drop in like months. Mm. So all these cards that are getting released like series five or series four are staying there, which means they're token expensive and they cut down how many tokens we get and they've cut down how much gold we get by this uh, spotlight cache sort of system. So I have mostly been trying to make things work uh, when balance patches or reworks happen. Those have actually been much more exciting to me now uh, rather than picking up new cards. The new Spider-Man mechanics, so he actually works better in a move deck than he does in a control deck, Yeah, uh, is amazing. You could use uh, Spider-Man. This is one that barely ever works, but when it does work, you feel like a genius. You could... Um, use uh an invisible woman and then a hobgoblin and then a galactus and then play spider-man or ghost spider to yank your invisible woman 
and then it'll trigger the hobgoblin Man. to go over the other person's side that's, and trigger Galactus. That's so, that's so mean. Uh, it is incredibly mean. <laughs> that is really cool. I mean, it's also, like, whatever. Anything that is hiding a lot of cards behind an invisible woman is obviously, ironically, you know, not ironically, appropriately transparent in, you know, in the plan of what someone is doing. Um, and I always try, when I see someone doing that, I just try to load up the board and beat them anyway. And just, you right. know, like, understanding, like, I know what you're pulling, and I want to make it blow up in your face. And it almost never works unless the game is very kind to me and, like, randomly puts all of the massive damage cards they pull in the wrong spots. But, uh, yeah, yep. I don't know. And I'm then I have, to, yeah, go on. I have a pure high evolutionary that I just play when I really need to, like, grind from, like, level 30 to, like, level 50. Yeah, see, high, high evolutionary, like, totally fell off. And I just, in the last 24 hours, have been getting back on board a little bit uh, because people aren't bracing for it as much. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, with the right cards there, you can get some interesting traction on there. And it's, it's like a kind of reliable deck. Uh, it doesn't feel like does, it has too many obvious vulnerabilities. Yeah, but I don't I think seems, I could play it all the way for like an infinite ticket or anything, no. but I could definitely play it while ladder climbing. I've just, I've seen so many in the last like, oh, again, in the last like 24 hours, like so many fucking like Hop Goblin decks and, and Green Goblin decks, which fuck up your... Aiva deck because you don't really have a counter to them and like you have to have destroy cards or uh, a Cosmo. Uh, I've also been fucking around with like a, the deck I've called Fast and the Furious. I don't know why, but it's Nick. I mean, the Nick Fury element is definitely part of it since they boosted him with like a lot of like I love the collector and all of those mechanics. Just get new cards coming to your deck. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also I have <laughs> I I'm not I have not spent any money chasing variants, but. Um, I do, and you know, for a game that you only play against strangers online, like having your deck look snazzy only goes so far. But I have really been enjoying collecting the Dan Hip variants, yeah. um, and I think he's sort of my favorite looking cards. And the Dan Hip variant of the Collector and of Agent Thirteen, uh, Agent Thirteen in particular, are awesome looking. And so I do like running that deck just because. But I'm trying to figure out a destroy deck because that seems to be what like the theme of the month is that that. I can use reliably and it's hard to find one that fits like Null and Galactus and Death and Nimrod and Shuri and like all that shit in there with Dakin and you have to make some sacrifices somewhere and oh yeah I I mean I've been it's been really nice in terms of just countering my destroy deck is I I super simplified it uh, to be basically to be based around like Venom and Null yeah so I'm just I think that's the way to go I'm playing lots of cards. I'm eating the cards. Uh, sometimes they're low cost cards, but I'm never having a problem with my ramp uh, because at the end of the day, you just plop down null and he wins. I just played a guy. I mean, I know that we now have uh, maybe one listener who fell asleep uh, and this is just going on in their unconscious mind and they'll wake up and they'll be like, I need to waste my life on this stupid Marvel card game. But uh, I, I just played someone who did something I hadn't seen before, which is like you really rely on Forge to boost uh iron man and deadpool and mm. and make like you know give them next two, two power and was just crushing me with like an 128 power deadpool like <laughs> and right. i ended up copying that with null and so maybe that'll be my next move i don't know we'll see yeah i think we'll if you see. put iron man into any deck that already has like a big swing power card you can yeah you know, push 60 in one lane if you're playing But you probably can't do that with Shuri and Nimrod together because it eats up too many cards. I don't know. Decisions, decisions. Yeah, 
I, I mean, the the best thing that could happen to me with my deck, is, with the, the Venom Null deck, is I do have a Nimrod in there, but it's more just in case somebody plays Wave against me or something, I just throw yeah. in the Nimrod and they get screwed. Uh, yeah. But putting Nimrod into a deck feels like if I put him into a, like something like a, a, a Hella deck or something, that it's kind of too much, too much Nimrod. Yeah, I mean, Nimrod, yeah, like, it's like it only works for Shuri. And, like, it yeah, only it works for Shuri. Becomes two, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, like, someone back in the day when, like, everyone was running Galactus, having Nimrod was helpful. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm getting feedback from our listeners in real time, and apparently they want this to become a weekly segment on the podcast where we just talk, talk snap. Snap talk, talk for snap. Uh, 15 minutes. Snap uh, talk. So, yeah, we're going to give the people what they want. Um, and uh, welcome to Snap Talk with bonus fighting in the war room. Uh, we'll let you back uh, <laughs> next week. I'll let you know how my all Dan hip deck is coming together. If there's any synergy there, there should be. Damn it! Well, you know but, we'll have the blessed season in uh, what is it October, where we'll have Loki season two and Loki cards at the same time. So that'll make it seem somewhat related to media criticism. Great. Uh, Looking forward yeah. to it. Hell yeah! Uh, all right, guys. All right. Well, back to the grid or the whatever the fuck they call this. <laughs> yeah. Of- what is there a name for the where you play snap the board yeah. the columns the, the, the board the locations the lanes the whatever yeah whatever. Back, to the, back to the lanes rolling, rolling some more balls down the lanes see ya see ya in uh nowhere what are the, i'm trying to think of any of the locations i stared at this game for hours a day i couldn't tell you half the things about it um so i'll see you at shuri's lab oh, wish sounds fantastic Kitty's and we'll be that. back okay and we'll be back in your feed uh, next week with at least one more host. Uh, until then, uh, be excellent to each other. Yeah. More importantly, talk. Bye. Bye.